Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Did Grandma rub whiskey on your sore gums when you were a teething baby? Did Mom whip up a hot toddy for your croupy cough? Alcohol, in almost any form, is one of the oldest medicines known to man. On this week's show, we're exploring the world of high-proof healing. We start with Camper English, author of Doctors and Distillers. Camper covers everything from mystical botanicals and their monastic apothecary origins to the unusual relationship between syphilis and root beer. The conversation continues with Noah Rothbaum, who expounds on curatives that found their way from the medicine cabinet to the liquor cabinet. And then, of course, there was that troublesome period known as Prohibition. That's when the apothecary filled your prescription for alcohol and soda fountains became commonplace at the pharmacy. Darcy O'Neill is here to explore that topic before I introduce you to my own personal apothecary on the corner. Stephanie Heberlin of Art Farm is my source for all sorts of healing and beauty products that originate in her garden on Canal Boulevard in New Orleans. We're taking the doctor's orders for whatever ails you on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Camper English, and I'm the author of Doctors and Distillers, The Remarkable Medicinal History of Beer, Wine, Spirits, and Cocktails. There's nothing San Francisco-based cocktail writer Camper English loves more than diving into what he calls the nerdy side of spirits history. That's exactly what he does in his book, Doctors and Distillers. Between the pages, Camper takes readers back in time to explore the interchangeable roles alcohol and medicine have played in human history. As he explained to us, so many of today's tipples were the tonics of old. Chartreuse, Benedictine, and oh, the Amaros. Yes, for as long as there has been alcohol, it's been used as medicine or in combination with medicine. Initially, a lot of it was about avoiding water and drinking water, which may have been unsafe from pathogens. People would only drink alcohol, and that's actually until relatively recently, <laughs> centuries of avoiding water. Um, but I, I think probably the amounts of alcohol that people consume just for basic nutrition and hydration uh, would be pretty surprising. The word alcohol itself, tell us about where that 
word originates from. Yes, well, it's uh, it has Arabic roots, and the uh, Islamic polymath scientists were distilling maybe not wine, although they had mentioned it, but perhaps didn't find it interesting, but they were definitely distilling rose water as well as making cosmetics. Interestingly, uh, cosmetics have a history as medicine, and I'm not sure why that is, but we find in some of the oldest medicinal documents, cosmetics listed along there along with spells and incantations and medicinal formulations. So the word is uh, al, Coal, K-O-H-L, the like the eyeliner, that's the root of alcohol, and the definition changed over the years to mean um, something ethereal, and then a spirit or the subtlest part of wine. I believe is uh, the the etymology of the word. In ancient times, the medieval science of alchemy often came into play when searching for cures. Ancient Egyptians were some of the earliest alchemists, but Camper champions the tale of Maria the Jewess, who's credited with inventing the Alembic still around 200 CE, making distilled spirits possible. But Maria should also be recognized as a culinary patron saint. The double boiler we use for gentle heating, which is commonly known as a bain-marie, was also her invention. Yes, the name, the bain-marie, comes, comes from Maria. And she is given a lot of names. Uh, Maria the Jewish, I think, is the most common one. And uh, she was supposedly an alchemist and teacher and scientist in the ancient world, probably from around the year two in the 200s. So we think of alchemy as associated with converting lead into gold. But what we do is we add the philosopher's stone in order to perfect lead into gold because it was seen as a natural progression that you were just speeding up. Similarly, if we added something to a human, it would cure all the diseases and then they might live forever. That additive was the quintessence or the life force of the universe. Not really an individual soul, but just sort of the thing that makes things alive, plants and animals. And so when early alchemists were making medicines by distillation, they were making like rose water and juniper water and wormwood waters to uh, make medicines from them. But they were also throwing into the still things like blood and hair and eggs to try to extract the energy from those. They were really distilling everything like mummy, urine of a healthy boy, corpse medicine. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that really spooked me. Yeah, it's uh, using corpses in the practice of medicine. So uh, specifically, the mummies got in there. Uh, it seems to be the case that uh, there is a black tar-like uh, pitch that could come out of sand, and it was used in medicine going back to the days of the Greeks and the Romans. A source of that black pitch was from mummies because that was used in the mummification process. However, eventually people sort of forgot the, uh, what the word referred to the pitch in mummies and just started using mummies themselves independent of this substance. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, mummies were used in medicine oddly specifically for bruises from falls. If you fell from your horse, you definitely want to have some mummy medicine along for the ride. There are two elements 
I don't know how to pronounce, but I know they'll roll right off your tongue. Those became like the universal cure-alls and stayed with us, even though the word sort of went away. Yeah, it was supposed to be a cure for all poisons. Um, so I say these as theriac and mithridates. Yeah, the words changed into treacle, which British people refer to as like a molasses, uh, a sticky molasses sweetener. There were big ceremonies in Italy in particular of the apothecaries of the time preparing these cure-all medicines and over weeks of public demonstrations to show what a process it was and how special it was. And these cure-alls over the years just got more and more kind of ridiculous and expensive. Uh-huh. There were things like pearls, crushed pearls put into them and gold. But the recipes for those start to look a lot like the complex herbal liqueurs that are still around today. So in 1605, the Carthusian monks set out on a task for King Henry IV? Yeah, so the monks were given a secret recipe for an important elixir, and uh, they worked for the next couple hundred years to try to perfect this elixir, and it becomes what we know of today as, as chartreuse, the liqueur. But that was initially a, in more concentrated form, as a medicine that they would sell or give to the local communities. And many of these all-purpose medicines maybe look a lot like the theriacs and Mithridates that we discussed earlier, included almost every fresh or medicinal herb known to humankind, but formulated in a way that would probably not taste so bad. Take me through the history of Benedictine. So the origin story is that uh, Benedictine was a beneficial medicine for the a group of monks in France and it was not commercialized initially but there was references to a very expensive medicine available. Uh, the monks were expelled and that recipe uh, from the notebook was given to someone and that person's grandson was the real founder of Benedictine as we know it today, the delicious honey-based spice liqueur. It kind of shocked me to learn that it was still used as traditional medicine in Chinese communities in Singapore and Malaysia. Yeah, I was uh, really surprised to see that. I had heard through my history in the uh, spirits industry that Benedictine sells very well in very specific places, but wasn't really familiar with uh, the specific use. So um, in some communities, it is traditional after a woman gives birth to uh, spend a period of basically rest and recovery. And in some communities, Benedictine uh, is added to chicken soup and other foods usually in that period. And some people would say that uh, one is supposed to consume one full bottle of Benedictine over the course of this this month of rest. Walk me through the amazing process that began with mineral springs that people believed if you bathed in or if you drank or if you took them in any way were healthful to soda water. So these waters were considered very healthy, importantly healthy. And when artificial carbonation was created, it was created specifically to make medicinal waters. 
and then they would try to replicate the mineral content of specific mineral springs. So you would go to the store and have your choice of uh, mineral water from this spring or that spring, not from those springs, but replicated the supposed healthful effects of those specific springs. So these early mineral waters then led to things like tonic water when extra healthy ingredients were added to that water. And we see everything like lemons uh, added to the soda water to the bitter quinine from which we get tonic water and eventually the gin and tonic. There's a lot to be said about juniper berries and gin, huh? Tell us all the things (laughs) that juniper berries do. We today associate it with gin, but of of course also with, I believe some meats are cooked with juniper um, as as a spice slash preservative Mm because almost all spices are antimicrobial. And uh, juniper was used in the beaks of the plague doctors' masks um, and that looked like birds. And along with other herbs, they were supposed to repel the miasma, uh, the, the sort of swampy gas that was supposed to cause the plague and other diseases like malaria. But uh, juniper in particular was used there, and it was um, used to smoke out households and uh, combat the plague. But... Ultimately, if we look at some natural flea repellents today, they still include juniper in the formulation. I was really surprised to learn about Dubonnet and its tie to French soldiers in North Africa or Turkey. Yeah, there's a lot of medicine and preventative as well as curative created specifically for armies and uh, navies. Quinine-infused wines were largely developed as a way to uh, prevent and cure malaria. And uh, quinine comes from the cinchona tree, which is native to Peru and Bolivia. And it's really, really bitter. And it's also barky because it's it's the bark that you're eating for medicine. Now, you can't just swallow a handful of bark. You need at least to rinse it down with some safe beer or wine. And then eventually products were developed to sort of pair a little bit better, make it more... Um, friendly to drink, and that's how we get Dubonnet. Syphilis was really something, and I didn't expect there to be a root beer tie. So syphilis may come from Columbus's visit to the New World at the time, because shortly after returning to Europe, the soldiers who had been on board spread syphilis all over Europe very quickly. Um, Within 15 years, it was in many, many countries in Europe, and shortly after that, the entire rest of the world. So people believe that you would find the cure for disease where the disease originated from. So they wanted uh, what we'd call American today, (laughs) medicinal ingredients. And two of those ingredients were sarsaparilla and sassafras, root beer ingredients. Oh, my goodness. But it didn't work. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to have worked. As far as I know, completely ineffective, and we needed penicillin to get that done. Thank you, Camper. This was so interesting, and I'm so grateful that we had the time to spend together. Thanks for coming to see us. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a really interesting process of learning the information in order to write the book. That was Camper English. His book is Doctors and Distillers, The Remarkable History of Beer, 
wine, spirits, and cocktails. Coming up next, our old friend Noah Rothbaum is back. The cocktail and spirits expert takes us from the medicine cabinet to the liquor cabinet. When Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Do your red beans cook up so creamy because they're cooked in Grandma's bean pot? Or is it her wooden spoon that makes them so special? Camellia Brand wants to honor your family's culinary keepsakes during their upcoming centennial. Share your treasures by emailing images and stories to me at poppy at poppytooker.com and we'll make sure you're part of the celebration. Noah Rothbaum is an expert on all things cocktails and spirits. He recently edited the Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails with David Wondrich and wrote The Art of American Whiskey. While putting together the latter volume, Noah became fascinated by the evolution of how spirits were distilled, advertised, and sold. We join Noah to learn how alcohol went from medicine, prescribed by a doctor, to the recreational cocktail ingredients we know today. Well, we might not see alcohol passing as medicine. Today, we do see medicine passing as alcohol, right? So we see a lot of brands that started off, you know, in the late, eight, mid to late 1800s, you know, as we get a real, you know, national brands and the creation of marketing agencies and PR companies. A lot of what the way that cocktails and spirits were promoted, they were promoted as cure-alls, right? And you could put anything on the label, right? That it, you know, prevented Le Gripe or, you know, like Fernet Branca started off for spleen pain or the Rock and Rye. Doctors believed in real medicinal benefits of either the herbs and spices going into these things, you know, whether it's amaros or other types of concoctions. And, and people really believe that they were healthy. Um, you see in 1870, the first American whiskey to come in a bottle is Old Forester. 
which has the distinction of being the only whiskey to be made before, during, and after prohibition or, or available. And Old Forester was, you know, was sold. It was the first bottled whiskey because they were marketing it to doctors, not because doctors are good drinkers; they are, but because doctors would prescribe alcohol for a range of maladies, right? But doctors could never be sure if the alcohol would do more harm than good because at that time, kind of like the illicit drug market today, alcohol was cut with all types of things, right? So it wasn't regulated. So you wasn't didn't really regulated. know what you were you, getting. No idea. The idea of like these giant distilleries making, you know, spirits and bottling them and they bottles go to the distributor and distributor go, that all comes later. I mean, at the beginning of our industry, you have a lot of basically every farmer, a lot of bars, they're all making alcohol. And you have people who are going around buying up the stuff, blending it, rectifying it, compounding it. So you really had no idea of what you were drinking, right? And, and a lot of the ads at that time are not only promoting the supposed health benefits of these things, but also the purity, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I think by putting, you know, doctor in front of a lot of these brand names or calling it, you know, hospital brandy or yeah. there are all these different things that over the were literally marketed that way. And the ads are really kind of amazing where half of it is, you know, about the purity of the thing and all the benefits. And then at the end it's like, and also great for, you know, entertainment. <laughs> and we see slowly over time though, as alcohol and cocktails become more regulated, you know, by the government really, you know, the Pure Food and Drug Act, the Bottled and Bond, you know, over time, starting really sort of with Teddy Roosevelt and going up to about FDR, it's not just alcohol, but it's also cosmetics, right? I mean, the early days of, you know, uh, a lot of the large cosmetic brands, you know, part of it was that when these laws were passed, they also had to rethink the way that they marketed their products to women and their tonics and face creams and cure-alls and I mean to this day liquor companies still can't tout the health benefits of their products whether or not they exist yeah so tell me are there medicines today that continue this tradition of sliding by on the benefit of their alcohol content um <laughs> it's an interesting question I mean I, I think the roots of a lot of what we have today contained different like more alcohol like you know mouthwash um uh you know obviously a lot of all the sodas that we have today were created by pharmacists a lot i mean coke famously at one point contained cocaine you know i mean the the government sues coca-cola at one point because it has so much caffeine right uh. and coke wins because they say look the law says we can add caffeine we just have to put it on the label and it's on the label. So, I mean, I think over time, we definitely see some of these products lose the alcohol, you know, as we turn from using alcohol as a means of, say, pain management, which is obviously a popular term today, where we're going to more uh, the rise of the big pharma, you know, and, and I mean, yeah. these things. And also, I mean, running in tandem or like science, you know, real medical research more you know medical advances you know it's better to use modern technology or you know for us to take medication to fight infections than than wrapping ourselves in in brandy soaked cloths that which was something that you know was 
at one point prescribed to people. And yet every bartender in America, I believe, might claim Fernet Branca to be a little <laughs> bit of a cure-all for them. Absolutely. I mean, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm not uh, humble enough to admit that when I was a child, even in elementary school, our nurse was pretty traditional. She was, she was pretty old school. And, and if you had a stomachache, you'd go in and she'd pull out a brown bottle, a medicinal grade bottle of Coke syrup right? And you'd get a teaspoon of Coke to settle your stomach. Well, that probably doesn't happen in elementary schools anymore. A lot of us still swear by drinking, you know, a room temperature glass of ginger ale yeah, or having some bitters or, you know, settle your stomach. I mean, and bitters and bits. My friend Matthew Raleigh wrote an amazing book about medicinal concoctions and always talks about you know, there are a lot of studies done where, you know, they polled doctors and said, you know, what is alcohol absolutely necessary to be in medicine? And, you know, the answer is no. But when they ask them, does it help? The answer is yes. I mean, obviously, people still believe, you know, there are plenty of herbalists out there who believe that there are alternative cures to modern medicine with, you know, different tinctures or compounds. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot of our modern medicine does come from those types of things. And no doubt we'll continue to find wonder drugs, you know, in the jungles of, you know, of Brazil and other places. And we've only really probably scratched the surface and such things. But, you know, is the alcohol component necessary f for that? Uh, you know, I think the herbalist or the modern medicine community would probably say that ship has probably sailed. <laughs> That was cocktail and spirits expert Noah Rothbaum. He's the author of The Art of American Whiskey and the forthcoming book, The Whiskey Bible. In 1919, Congress introduced the 18th Amendment, also known as the Volstead Act, which prohibited the production, sale, and transport of intoxicating liquors within U.S. borders. Prohibition also brought major changes to America's soda fountain businesses. In his book, Fix the Pumps, Canadian author Darcy O'Neill examines this topic as well as the origins and original practices of the soda fountain in the U.S. We join Darcy for a phosphate and a conversation that may have you reconsidering what you thought you knew about the soda fountain. The whole story of the soda fountain really begins with carbonated water. Explain that to me. Well, what they knew is that uh, mineral springs, volcanic mineral springs, had health benefits. So obviously chemists try to reproduce that. And what happened is that uh, eventually they figured it out by carbonating water, adding salts to it, and then selling it at pharmacies. Now, it was no coincidence that soda fountains were always located in pharmacies, was it? No, it wasn't, because the uh, pharmacists tended to deal with anything chemical in nature, because they were chemists. That was their original title. And so anything that was perceived as a chemical benefit to 
people was used to treat them. So whether it was soda water or alcohol or even cocaine and you know opiates, that was what they dealt with. Is that at the time in the 1800s they thought everything was good for you until proven otherwise. <laughs> Well, I was particularly fascinated to learn that once the pharmacists began to create those special concoctions, they were actually stealing business away from the bars and saloons. Yeah, and once they started to get uh, the drugs, the real narcotics into drinks, and that's where all of the narcotics came from nowadays, started off at the soda fountain. So what happened was they discovered these and they started putting them to drinks because drinks were actually a vector for medicine, so soda water. And at the time they didn't have pills or capsules, so everything went into a drink. And as people would have their morning cocaine, literally, it was very addictive, so they'd have more than one a day. And in Atlanta, uh, where Coca-Cola started, they were having 12 glasses of Coca-Cola a day, which is about 100 to 120 milligrams of cocaine a day. Yikes! Now, what time period are we talking about here? Uh, 1880s to about 1904, then the laws started to come in that banned these uh, narcotics. And now you could still get the narcotics, you just need a prescription for them. Before that, it was a free-for-all. You could go in and get cocaine if you wanted. Cocaine was the main drug, even though heroin and assorted other painkillers were available. But the uh, popularity of it was what drove the market. There were poisons involved too, right? Yeah, it basically there's aniline dyes, which are extremely bad for you. Being chemists, they were more focused on the chemistry as opposed to the real health benefits. And, you know, whereas a bartender, you know, they served alcohol, which wasn't, you know, in quantities not good for you. The chemists had access to everything. You know, any herbal supplement, anything uh, chemical, you know, synthetics, everything. And they didn't have clinical trials like we do today and safety laws. So they just tried out on the customers. If the customer survived, great. You know, if they didn't, then, you know, there really wasn't the lawsuits or the, you know, type of thing that'd come up with an excuse and that would be it. You know, it was kind of sad at the time, but uh, that's the way it developed. It's pretty well known that Coca-Cola had cocaine in it. What was the special ingredient in 7-Up? 7-Up actually used lithium. It was a lithiated soda. And lithium uh, is a mood stabilizer, and it's a prescription product now, but it was found in a lot of mineral water fountains. So you could actually get lithiated springs, and that's where 7-Up came in, is that they took lithium from these mineral waters and then they just add lemon and lime to it. And then there was a period when they were also using some uh, radiation? Radioactive cocktails. Uh, what, <laughs> how they described it, or how they figured this out, was when for health reasons, you'd go to a, a mineral spring. And when they discovered radioactivity, they found it in these mineral springs, so they thought the radiation was helping you, so they'd make radioactive sodas. There was actually a patent on it, I believe. Now, it was the Pure Food and Drug Act that changed all of this in 1906, right? Correct. All of the effects of the drugs that they were putting into the uh, sodas they're starting to recognize that they were uh, bad for you. And, you know, there was certain pharmacists who would recognize this or doctors would recognize this right off the bat, and then they'd, they wouldn't sell it. So it wasn't all pharmacists that were bad. Once they recognized it, it was quite acceptable to stop selling it. But, you know, you'd have to find the side effects first. Now, what effect did Prohibition have on the soda fountain business? Well, one of the big things was that Prohibition caused a lot of bartenders to go into the soda fountain business because they were unemployed. And so what you get is this crossover between bartending and soda fountain. And then even when alcohol came back, most of the bartenders from the you know early part of the century had 
retired, gone into different careers. So now you had soda jerks became the new bartenders. And that obviously influenced it by sweeter drinks and more syrups and these types of things that were more associated with the soda fountain than the hard drinking of the bar. So what sort of effect did prohibition have on soda fountains? Well, before that, what would happen was that uh, prohibitionists would actually attack the soda fountains because they were selling drugs and it was perceived as intoxicating. And prohibitionists, as long as it was intoxicating, they were against it. So there's cases of it out in the Midwest where they'd go in with an axe and basically chop up the pharmacy much like they used to chop up saloons. And that was going on before the Volstead Act? Correct. It was going on probably in the, uh, the heyday of the drug era, which was the 1890s to, you know, 1910. And what it was was that, you know, again, anything intoxicating, prohibitionists did not like. Were there special things that were happening in New Orleans? After all, New Orleans is the place where the cocktail was invented. Are there any special parallels in the soda fountain world? Uh, there was a lot of parallels. Uh, New Orleans was about the second highest place for soda fountains outside of Atlanta. So it was actually uh, a hopping place for soda and obviously the drugs had their part in it and the alcohol for cocktail bars, New Orleans being a freewheeling city. You know, it fit perfectly with the times. But New Orleans has a number of uh, sodas that people have forgotten about, like nectar. It was quite popular. It still is popular today, even though the, the original recipe is no longer used. Um, I believe it was made with peach juice back when it was created. That's so interesting because when we think of the flavor nectar here, we usually think of a combination of almond and vanilla. So it was peaches? Yeah, peach juice. And I think that was just uh, one of those things that over time formulas get simplified or they use other things in it. But the original formula was uh, fresh things that were available. What do you attribute to the demise of the soda fountain? Uh, refrigeration and bottled soda because what happened was that you could go anywhere uh, once you had refrigeration that was convenient and basically buy a coke right over a refrigerator and it basically made the uh, soda jerk redundant because there was no reason for them to make fresh soda even though there's great things about fresh soda you know variety and stuff but it was a sad day about the 1960s when it ended well thank you so much for talking with us thank you very much Darcy O'Neill, soda fountain historian and author of Fix the Pumps. What is the flavor known as nectar, and where did it originate? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry. Their new stuffing mix brings the flavor to your holiday table, available in herbal or cornbread, and their brown gravy and marinade have your turkey covered. 
Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter, along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Fall on Louisiana's North Shore brings outdoor festivals and lots of holiday events. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. This week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the flavor known as nectar and where did it originate? For many New Orleanians, nectar is the sticky sweet pink essence of their childhood. From cats and best off nectar sodas to nectar snowballs, Nectar is a flavor that combines bitter almond and vanilla with a little pink coloring and a whole lot of sugar. I always believed nectar was a New Orleans original. It is an indisputable fact that Isaac Lyons invented and bottled the nectar syrup that was used at every New Orleans soda fountain from 1866 until the 1960s. When it was no longer available commercially, many a homemaker devised their own recipe for the magical elixir. But hold on to your seats. The folks in Cincinnati, Ohio, think they invented nectar. Mullane's Confectionery on 4th Street there has been serving a nectar soda since 1892, which was a little less than 30 years after Isaac Lyons began marketing his bottled syrup in New Orleans. But here's the real kicker. In 1875, Mary Mullane, owner of said confectionery, sent her son John to study candy making in Quebec City with William McWilliams, chief confectioner to the Governor General of Canada, where he learned how to make a nectar-flavored hard candy. Next, he made nectar taffy, and then came the nectar soda. Nectar flavor from Quebec? What the heck? Anyhow, nectar syrup is back with a vengeance, thanks to Frank Simoncioni of Old Time New Orleans Products. You can find his syrup on grocery store shelves or can order directly from his website, flavorsandsyrups.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Nectar Syrup makes for some sweet Louisiana Eats. When I moved to Canal Boulevard a few years ago, I often walked my dog Buddy past a magical walled garden located on a nearby corner. In pots, in planters, and in multiple flower beds surrounding the house 
were some of the most unusual plants I've ever seen. Succulents of every shape and size, blooming, multiplying, trying to spread right out onto the sidewalk. This garden was simply fantastical. Finally, I got up the nerve to introduce myself, which was how I first came to know my neighbors, Stephanie and Brad Heberlin of Art Farm. Brad designs and builds amazing concrete art planters that Stephanie fills with countless varieties of unusual succulents and other plants. Today, Stephanie is my source for all sorts of healing and beauty products that originate in her garden on Canal Boulevard. I love succulents and cactus of all kinds. I find that the environment here and the weather is conducive to growing them. And succulents and cactus have many properties that I find useful in the home. So Stephanie, is there any particular plant that you like to work with or that's especially special to you? Well, yes. Aloe is a very special plant and I grow it here. Aloe grows freely, all on its own, very little maintenance. And here it is. Oh my goodness, Stephanie. It's giant. They're about what they're over three feet tall, aren't they? I have giant aloe because I've been growing them for 10 years plus. There are many things you can do with aloe and I can show you some applications if you'd like. Okay, great. So where do we start? We're going to start with harvesting and cleaning. You want to take a middle leaf, mostly green, large, cut it at the base, comes off pretty easily. I'm going to cut two of them here. See that yellow stuff? Yeah, that's kind of yucky. What the heck is that? That is actually a poisonous substance. It's used to make latex, if you can believe. So you have to make sure that you don't have this in your aloe when you're using it as a topical or as an ingested. So what do we do? We are going to have to let it drain out. Easily drains out within five minutes. Okay, let's go. Let's do that. After we'd known each other for a bit, she welcomed me into her kitchen, where I discovered she's also quite the alchemist herself. Here's Stephanie with the story of how it began. Well, you know, it is kind of a funny story because I wasn't one of these people that really did any of this organic stuff. But I had a baby and my child, as an infant, had eczema and it you know, can't tell infants what to do. They don't listen to you. So he would scratch at night, bleeding from those little itchy patches that is very common in in babies, this little eczema thing. So what did the doctor do? I had three different prescriptions for topical remedies, and um, they would work. Like the first one worked really well, went away for two weeks and came back, and I would have to continue to put this stuff on. They're very expensive, Um, these topical steroids and Uh, I guess, antibiotic creams, and I'm not real sure. I didn't really look into all the ingredients. I just know after the third doctor visit, I had had it. Mm. And um, I had this one aloe plant outside. And so I went and I cut the aloe, and I found some oatmeal, some coconut oil. I just kind of threw it all in a tub, you know. I, I blended it all up, put it all over him, kept him in the tub for, I don't know, 30 minutes, and he felt so much better already. 
he was able to sleep that night. So maybe three or four nights, did the same thing. And seriously, his eczema cleared up. It was crazy. It was, that was pretty dramatic. It was a dramatic change. And I figured if it could cure eczema, it could also like help a wrinkle. So I make a few products for maturing women, mostly. That's how it happened. <laughs> So now you've got these long pieces of aloe that mm, there may be, I don't know, you think eight inches long or so? That's about right, eight inches long. They have spikes all on either side. Protection for every cactus is its little needles. A lot of people use a little vegetable peeler. You can just peel them right off. I just use my knife because it's handy. When you cut the aloe, before you can use it, you've got to bleed this nasty stuff that they use to make latex they use it to make latex and that's about the extent i know i do know it's poisonous and toxic so if you're going to ingest it definitely want to make sure it's gone so you'll see this is going to fill up with water the water will turn yellow and i'm going to let it run over i'm going to drain it and just keep doing that until there's no yellow in the water at all and what happens next if you want to use the gel you have to peel off the the aloe. It's just like a fish, cleaning a fish. So the gel, what would the uses be? Why would you be doing this? So aloe is not just for burns. It's great for your skin. It's great for anti-aging, for wrinkles. It's great for pimples, any kind of um, skin rash or infection. It has anti-inflammatory properties. It has tons of vitamin C, which everybody knows is great for your skin. Tons of vitamin E, which is a preservative, really. If you drink the juice, which many people do, it's great for your liver, your lungs, detox. Okay, now, you've got the inside, the filet of the aloe vera, and you've got it in a little bowl. And now what happens? And now I just blend it up. I use a stick blender, but you can just stick it in your good old stand blender, even a Cuisinart, anything you want. And that is really something special. It's all fluffy. It looks like beaten egg whites now. Exactly. What would you do with this gel now? Let's talk about how you apply it in the things that you make. Well, with the gel at home, it's something I won't use in in my business. I I like to dry it to use it in my business because then it's preserved. From there, you put it in a mortar and pestle or a coffee grinder grind it up and you have powdered aloe so this is dried aloe leaves They're in my mortar and pestle which i love to pieces okay and um and then you just kind of crush them in okay cool so you've got this and you sieve it that is quite a labor intensive thing what do you do with the powder i make face masks hair masks i blend it into lotions and also into my face wash. Stephanie, thank you so much for letting me into your garden and letting me into your little apothecary kitchen. You're so welcome. It was a pleasure. Stephanie Heberlin of Art Farm. You can find Brad and Stephanie at weekend art markets here in New Orleans 
or learn more about their artistry with plants at artfarmnola.com. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.